If you wanted to take over our world with a minimum amount of resistance and trouble, how would you go about it? This next true, terrible tale is known simply and enigmatically as alien fatbergs invade Liverpool. Jamie Oliver was loitering in a back alley, even though a judge had told him not to. But he was far too much of a white raster to listen to some whitey in a curly wig. She reminded him far too much of his auntie Valerie, not because of her vulture-like features and authoritarian cadence, but because she had a hammer and made him nervous. In fairness, the section of the alley in question did actually belong to him, for Jamie Oliver was the self-proclaimed fried chicken king of Liverpool. A deep-fried oligarch, if you will. A godfather of Greece, a heart attack fencer, and a fast food Freemason. He's a different Jamie Oliver. This notion of takeaway nobility had come to Jamie during a ketamine whiteout in 2006. Rooted to the floor of his living room by the famous recreational horse tranquilizer, Jamie had been menaced by a medieval notion of hell. Writhing bodies tumbling into fiery pits, beams devouring men and women whole, and worst of all was a badly drawn two-dimensional devil bumming a line sketch that looked uncomfortably like himself, who looked uncomfortable. When Jamie came to, he concluded that the Dantean vision had actually been a deep brown stain on his carpet, the sort of stain you get when you misuse muscle relaxants. Still, the feeling of dread at such a vision had resolved Jamie to make something of himself, and so he purchased the Chicken Castle, Smithdown Rome's premium medieval-themed chicken emporium. It had been an ill-advised purchase for the young ketamine addict, and business was bad. But in Jamie's eyes, the best way to keep costs down and profit up was by cutting corners, which was why all the menus were round. It was also why he was pouring litres of leftover frying grease down the small drain at the alley centre to avoid disposal costs. But as he poured, he noticed something. A deep green light emanating from the sewers below. And as the fat gurgled its way down to meet it, the sinister light became stronger and stronger, as though it were feeding it somehow. Which, for clarification, it was. I hope this has got nothing to do with that gypsy at all to fuck off last week, said Jamie. You should probably stop pouring the fat down the drains, Jamie, especially after that mysterious green asteroid crashed into the tavern last night. Jamie's face crinkled in anger as his eyes shot up to meet the amiable features of Jermaine, the smug vegan bastard, waving pleasantly from the back door of his extremely successful vegan restaurant next door. Yeah, well, you should stop pouring the smashed avocado down the drain, cause, 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 cause that's worse. There's no need. Our customers eat every part of the smashed avocado. I'll smash your bloody avocado. Jamie muttered. I do beg your pardon. I said put a chop in it, you stupid vegan. Jermaine shook his head. He never rose to Jamie's barbs, not even to his provocative signage that included Joan of Arc burning a chicken at the stake. 
Seriously though, man, you shouldn't put your grease down there. That's how you get fatbergs. All that cooking oil and grease is going to merge into a solid mass, clogging up all the sewers. It'll be apocalyptic to get rid of. But Jamie wasn't listening, because behind Jermaine, a pillar of green discarded cooking grease was rising from the grate and forming into a solid mass. Jermaine's goatee twitched quizzically, and he turned around. The fat bird burbled. This form will do, it said. Suddenly, it grabbed the vegan restaurateur and French kissed a greasy, gloopy lump of itself into Jermaine's horrified mouth. He tried to scream, but his wails had a choked quality, like a drunk man eating toxic Play-Doh for a bat. Soon, every pore of his perfect skin was oozing day-glow green sweat, corroding his skin, melting his bones, consuming the restaurant owner from within. The second greasy pile that had once been Jermaine solidified, much like the T-1000 from the floor of the mental asylum before he murdered that security guard, but made of cheap lard instead of mimetic polyalloy. Are we addressing the one known as King of Chicken? Said the fat burg. That's me, said Jamie, taking all this in his stride. He'd seen far worse on the cat train. What can I do for you? We wish you to manage a food festival, said the second fat burg that appeared behind him. A very large and important food festival of which your chicken would be at the center, said the third fatberg. Jamie laughed. You've gone to the wrong place there, chum. A fried chicken for drunks and stoners? I don't go in for all that artisan, halloumi and chives bollocks. Well, thus far, we can now acquire the necessary permits to sell your chicken at the festival said the second fat folk, gesturing to its now greasy, Jermaine-like appearance. Animation can begin! The fat folks chorus together, foreshadowingly. Jamie stared hard at the gurgling alien murder blobs. Could he really trust them to save his takeaway? They'd killed a man in front of him, true, but then he hadn't liked Jermaine and it would be judgmental and uncharitable to assume that they would kill again. Poor there, said Jamie Oliver, cheerfully and quite obviously betraying his species for chicken and glory. Three weeks later, and the chicken was flying out, which is to say that sales were good, not that the chicken was undercooked. Jamie Oliver made his way down the passageway, lined with deep fat briars, his army of fatberg workers shoveling great shovelfuls of chicken into the fryer like stokers on a transatlantic liner. Get to it, folks, said Jamie. I love the way you're all working together in a sinister hive-like unity. Thanks, boss. It was all they said in perfect unison. No time for a chit-chat. The festival's at under an hour. As Jamie entered the shop floor, he saw his sister, Janine, 
a professor of medieval occult history who had he persuaded to load greasy boxes of fried chicken into the last of many vans destined for the Baltic Triangle. Jermaine hasn't been home in days, she said, sounding as concerned as she looked, which was concerned. The two had been dating ever since he'd seduced her into veganism with his lies about nuts. And since he started working for you, he seems somehow different. Jamie looked over at Jermaine, who was now a circular pool on the tiles, with only his face breaking the surface of the glistening pool of green, glowing fat. Seems fine to me, he said, nonplussed. Why is he translucent, Jamie? said Janine. Look, could you just shut up and drive to the Baltic so I can have my cat? Well, that's another thing, said Janine, starting the engine and pushing the automatic van's gear stick to fifth. You promised you'd get off the skag. It's not natural. It comes from horses, shrugged Jamie. No, it's four horses. Was it? Yes. Well, if, if you give it to horses, it must still be natural. It wouldn't give a horse a PlayStation. You'd give it an apple, wouldn't you? It's not made of apples either. Whatever, muttered Jamie, as he finished rolling his ketamine joint, balanced it on his key, and snorted it down to the roach in one snort before passing out. <laughs> Hours later, Jamie came to, alone in the cab of the van, parked outside the Baltic. Janine had gone, leaving the ever-irritating Leanne Campbell grating out over the airwaves via Radio City. It seems to be covering the entire city! Norfolk! Norfolk can stop it! It's like a wave! A wave of... Jamie switched off the radio with disgust. Leanne Campbell would go on to say... Jamie tried the van door, but realised it was locked. Janine! Janine, you've locked me in! Break Jamie in irritation, beeping the horn of the van for emphasis. Janine! Where are you? Janine squirted through the keyhole, reforming squelchily into the driver's seat across from him. She sat there, glistening, staring wordlessly ahead. Jamie eyeballed her with open-mouthed incredulity. What is wrong with you, Janine? Do not pay the slightest bit of attention as to what is going on, said Jamie crossly. Lock me in the van. I could have died like a dog on a hot day. Do you want me to asphyxiate like a hot dog? Janine rotated her head 360 degrees in a botched attempt at shaking it back and forth. There was a pause. Are you saying no? Yes. No. No. I mean no. Are you sure you're alright? Yes. I am on my period. Fair enough, said Jamie, not wanting to touch that. Just unlock the van. Jamie exited the van, and he strolled to the market entrance, Janine glooping after him. He waved cheerily at the smokers stood stock still outside, 
their faces glazed in green sweat, their unlit roll-ups hopelessly drenched in dripping. Morning, gentlemen. Chicken heaven is T-minus. Soon, said Jamie cheerfully as he breezed by. The smokers did not reply. Jamie made his way across the great floor of the Baltic market to his stall. He applied a blue and white striped apron and looked out over the crowds of people, eerily silent, but for the drip, drip, dripping of their faces onto the plastic tabletops. In truth, ladies and gentlemen, it was over 45 minutes before he realized that something was amiss. Is anyone going to buy any chicken? He asked. One bite is all we needed, Jamie. The crowd responded. Now we are all one, said the smokers outside. Every living being, said Janine. We are the fat pigs, said Leanne Campbell over the radio. Jamie Oliver considered the far-reaching consequences of this but not for very long. I can't make any money off one bite, he scowled, pulling his apron off and storming out of the building, the crowd flowing around him. Where's Jermaine? This wasn't part of the deal. The once people of the city of Liverpool let out a slippery, synchronous sigh. You don't get it, do you? I get it, Jamie grumbled as he began to climb a nearby fire escape. I put on a food festival with an alien hive mind that's used my chicken to assimilate the population of Liverpool. And beyond. He heard the Wirral chime in from over the water. Talk about fine print. It was a verbal contract, said the increasingly gelatinous crowd that was following him. Jamie reached the roof of the building and looked out over the city. The streets anchored deep in otherworldly oils, which undulated unusually as it considered his argument. A decision made, all of the fatbergs in Liverpool moved in unison, slivering away to gather around the Radio City Tower, using the landmark like a stick and a toffee apple, where they coalesced into a 400-foot fat sculpture of Germain's facile face. Others possible that you have been maslard? It burbled grudgingly. You were supposed to save my business, not leave it in darkness. How can I be king of chicken if there's no one left to eat it? The gargantuan fatberg nodded thoughtfully and slipped its facial features into that of Jamie Oliver's. A greasy 50-foot crown perched atop his head. Perhaps you could be king of England instead. And so Jamie Oliver became the new king of England, which he ruled with an indifferent but surprisingly effective reign from his seat of power at the Chicken Castle on Smithtown Road, until the Fatbergs were defeated by the Great Degreasing Rebellion led by Mr Muscle. But that is a story that I haven't written yet. This one was completely true, though. Did not remember when alien fatbergs ruled the earth. Jill Dando doesn't. After her time. Tragic, really. Oh, and to any vegans who have squirmed their way through this nightmare of animal produce, 
a question. Isn't eating plants like repeatedly waterboarding someone so that you can harvest their organs and kids? Isn't that cruel? Food for thought. <laughs> what a delicious irony. Can we get some chicken? Oh, all right. The end. Fucking happy? Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I run with a different crowd now, to be honest, man. Yeah. Yeah. I did I did used to do children's stuff. But you removed on. So, all the memories. I, I, I was not long out of it. I, I got inspired uh, to write the... Have you, have you read The Tentacle Monster of Bethnal Green? I was inspired to write The Tentacle Monster of Bethnal Green by watching a video online with a group of people. A group of young people. Menaced by tentacles. It was deadly as catch. In the tale, a tentacle monster joins an all-girls school to much mishap and learning of life lessons that state that the most important thing is to be yourself, even if you're a sentient tentacle in a straw hat with bunches. It was rejected in favour of the suitcase kid by Jacqueline Wilson. Bastards. We haven't seen eye to eye, me and Jackie, since she chucked out her first treatment of Tracy Beaker. Yeah, the one when she gets cornered in the showers of the prison. She punches, put palm upwards, puts the nose into the brain. Bam! Well, lead bully's dead. The respect that she earns, that that's what gives her the confidence to peg the warden in front of a baying crowd without fear of reprisal. That's a fucking, it's a great book. It's a great book, that first treatise of the suitcase quid. Very, very different. Yeah, great book. I really didn't like the way that Jackie took it in the end. What a major shift. Is it in a children's home or something? Yeah. It was like Orange was the new black. Um, meets those like Louis Farouk prison documentaries where everyone gets stabbed. Yeah. You know when one mate turns into a bit of a dick and the whole group just sort of splinters? Well, that's what happened with, with me and Jacqueline Wilson. I remember, we, we went on one of those writers' retreats in the North Pole, and it was me, Anne Fine, and Judy, Blo Judy Bloom dropping hot rocks into her parka the whole trip. <laughs> she would not stop smoking joints. It was very funny. Jacqueline Wilson up at the front with the guide. Swat. Anyway, we saw all these polar bears and Sophie Dahl, what it would be hilarious, and to be fair it was, what it would be hilarious if we just locked Philip Pullman out the jeep. And I, 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 know, I was just watching him, oh, oh, running with his bandy legs across the tundra, running, and I remember him shouting, I remember him, and you, you'll, you'll laugh at this, I remember him shouting, please! Please, God help me, God! Please, God! Please, I want to live, God! Please, God, help me, God! Oh, I think he's developed a complex about that. He lost his golden compass. And his silver protractor as well. Idiot. <laughs> I just got Judy Bloom's phone number as well that night. Mind you, I caught that from a phone box. From a sticker that said massage. <laughs> Nightmare. Judy Bloom, are you in my suit? She wasn't. Uh, and I still don't see how putting that up there was going to sort my back out. So, you know, whatever you're doing, get it, get it over with. Because I've got a long bike ride home across cobbles. Do you get me? 
And why did we have to do it in the phone box? And who's on the end of this phone line breathing heavily? Jacqueline Wilson. I ditched Judy Bloom soon after. Literally ditched her. Threw in a ditch out of a moving van. I missed the River Humber. It was so embarrassing. It's massive. They wouldn't shut up about it all evening, so I had to beat them all at darts. Right, right. Okay, if you, if you guys are all so cool, well, let's play darts. Faddy Spent wins. You're a loser. You're a loser. You're a loser. I'm the best. No. No. If you're best at darts, then you can't be a cunt. I'm going home. I'm going home, Phil. You were much more fun before you were mates with Jesus. When I told you that I was sick of you moaning about God, and maybe you should try channeling in something a bit more creative, I didn't mean write a stupid book with bears in. You'd want to see Philip Pullman's dark materials. The police certainly did. Before the convenient fire. Well, I, I can't have a go at Phil. We're, he helped me out quite a bit a few days later. I, I, I have seen this. I got invited to the Booker Prize winner's bare knuckle boxing championship. I was in deep shit against Jacqueline Wilson. She'd done the prep like a swat, you see. Pummeling mailbags full of lead shot bare-fisted for over a month. Sweep the leg! I heard Terry Deary whisper to her from under the ropes. But Philip Pullman came through for me. He passed me a subtle knife between the ropes. This is not a mud hole, Jacqueline. This is an operating table. And I'm the surgeon. I came up and I got her in the soft bit under her jaw. She was like a ham hock with glasses and a lesbian's haircut. <laughs> I was like, I had like a, like a bloody candy floss. Apparently her liquid metal body was seen re-pulling after an hour. Till next time, Jackie. <sighs> Where was I? Oh yes! Ghosts! In your world, ladies and gentlemen, you likened time to a straightened arrow. The head of the arrow pointed to the future, and the feathery quill bit behind, in the past, probably wearing a Walkman or Party of Five t-shirt. I am here to shatter those illusions. For time is nothing as crude and as linear as an arrowhead. It's more akin to a Mark 211 Mod Zero high-explosive incendiary armor-piercing sniper round containing a .30 tungsten penetrator, zirconium powder, and composition A explosive. Or a chocolate eclair. Because it's got flaky pastry. Never is this factual fact more applicable than in the story of Benjamin Bakula. A tall, fair-haired man with four moustaches surrounding his lips, Benjamin Bakula was one of the many office workers in Liverpool, tasked with monitoring the Hellmouth below Dale Street. And as you may guess, this position was not very good for his health. The workers were oft plagued with carpal tunnel, vitamin D deficiencies, and the occasional possession by demonic entities. You know, general office illnesses. But Benjamin was alright, because he was in his early twenties. As a young desk monkey, Benjamin could sit at his computer, punching in the numbers between coffee and biscuits until break time, when he would go to the vending machine as an excuse to flirt with the secretaries nearby, using a pack of original flavour hula hoops to propose to each of them in turn, before pretending the last potato he sat under was the one ring to rule them all. And they loved him for it. 
the pen-pushing day job meant that Benjamin never had to worry about money in the bank. So at the weekends, he would discard his sensible chinos for his pulling breeches, complete with LED codpiece and a night on the town. Downing pints of Jaeger export, Carlsberg bombs and fizzy pop, he'd party all night long before stumbling to the nearest kebab shop for something wrapped in something for under a tenner. All effortlessly paid for with a single swipe of his contactless card payment. But then, on his 25th birthday, the change began. He started and finished every day tired. He began to cherish every early night. His waistline expanded as each hangover became harsher, and all his favourite foods went straight through him like a poltergeist. With nothing else to do on the toilet but flip through his old profile pictures, Benjamin even began to suspect that someone had been sneaking into his room at night with a bicycle pump to slowly inflate his face. Something was amiss. The secretaries no longer gave his golem impression their full attention, as it had become increasingly disingenuous coming from his doughy physique. They began to refer to him as Chubster or Pudge, and for sport, talked to keeping metal pens in the office fridge, taking turns to drop the chilly stylus down his bum crack whenever he bent over. Things came to a head at the New Year's party when the girls left a fountain pen in the freezer overnight, and the resulting drop left Benjamin with a Parker pen logo permanently frostbitten into his arse cheeks. <sighs> the downward arrow only encouraging further attempts. Even Fat Chris, the office's portly human resources manager who had taken him to A&E for the frostburn, started to take the piss. I'll have to start calling you Fat Ben soon. He chuckled, taking another fistful of nuggets from the toggle-shut duvet cover filled to capacity with KFC. Like a lumberjack with a lax attitude to health and safety, Benjamin Bakula was carrying too much timber. And as he sighed and watched the fireworks from the hospital window, he wished he could be anywhere else. He also wished he could lie on his back, but the former feelings are more significant to our tale. Three weeks into January, Benjamin flopped down on the floor of his bachelor pad after a third unsuccessful attempt at bench-pressing the new rowing machine he had bought with his contactless card payment. Two stationary exercise bikes sat with an air of smug defiance as they too had resisted his attempts to deadlift or arm curl them. Benjamin trudged to the bathroom and with the same enthusiasm that a condemned man mounts the electric chair, stepped onto the scales. After a few minutes leaning backwards and forwards, there was no improvement. He cracked open a Lucase Tropical Protein Shake. If these things didn't start working soon, he was going to have to do something drastic, like swallow a tapeworm or join a gym. Three and a half weeks into January, Benjamin hit the rough carpet outside the office gym. I know I don't have a membership, but I was only using the free weights, cried Benjamin into the back of the unsympathetic gym instructor. As he groaned face down in the carpet, he heard the squeak of wheels. He looked up 
It was Ichi Namaguma, the office coffee trolley man. A slight mystery as to why there was an office coffee trolley man, seeing as there was a kitchenette and a vending machine on each floor, and a full coster downstairs. Still, there was no real limit to the copulence of the corporation's employees. Are you all right? asked Ichi. No, grizzled Benjamin, coughing tears from his face. I need to lose weight, but I don't know how. Oh, why isn't there just a way of paying someone to show you? He whined, drying his tears on a flyer for personal trainers. You poor man, sighed Itchy. You want some cake? Yes, yes please, said Benjamin immediately. Have you considered drinking less, Mr. Bakula-san? said Itchy, his wise moustache gently vibrating. Those fat frogs from Blue Angel that you're so fond of are 14,000 calories a half. That's what a man of your build is supposed to have in a week. Benjamin considered this, but not for very long. I'm not giving up my fat frogs. Honestly, you'll be asking me to give up the quad vogs next, he said, massaging the right side of his chest, which had lately begun to hurt intermittently. Have you ever tried the ancient art of jogging? Jogging, corrected Benjamin. What's so great about jogging? Jogging, Mr. Bakula-san, is the most spiritual of journeys. For the purpose of all sojourns is to ultimately find yourself, and no matter the length and shape of the park you jog round, you will always arrive full circle, back at your house. Take the key from inside your sock or small backpack, Mr. Bakula-san. You'll find yourself inside. I don't have time for jogging, said Benjamin. I'm generally raving till the early hours, and then I've got to buy flip-flops and going to Magaluffin a week. Itchy nodded thoughtfully, and in place of a curt verbal response, produced a pair of Adidas Samba trainers, proffered to him by a skeletal hand that emerged from the coffee urn. A chill went down Benjamin's spine, which for once wasn't an icy Parker pen. These will help you find the time, Mr. Balakulo-san. And so, giving no thought as to the motivations of a man with a cake trolley hanging around outside a gym, Benjamin took the proffered trainers and went home. The dawn of the next day saw Benjamin pull on his faded Carnage pub crawl t-shirt, which still had faded dicks drawn all over it, but was the only cotton garment he owned that fitted loosely enough, and pull on his old PE shorts, which he generally wore to bed now, and then put on the mysterious Adidas Samba trainers, massaged his glutes, and began to jog. As Benjamin ran along to part two of Mike Oldfield's Tubular Bells, a favorite of his since his parents' surprisingly amicable divorce, his eyes scanned the rising summer sun, glittering across the modern, spacious flat complexes surrounding his local park, enticing him across the hard concrete paving labs, stretching before him like L. Frank Baum's yellow brick road in a post-gold standard bars. This is great, he thought. My glutes are getting the workout of a lifetime, and I haven't even stumbled upon any corpses yet, which is, I understand, a trope. Why, I could go on all day. But he didn't. And not just because he was shagged out after 15 minutes. Benjamin's rhythm was broken all of a sudden by a full-size billboard advertising the RMS Titanic. How odd, he thought, to think that Leonardo DiCaprio would ever get an Oscar. 
his thoughts consumed by the thoughts of the bear rape scene in The Revenant. He did not notice the other jogger, who he almost collided with. Sorry, gasped Benjamin. No worries, replied his fellow, in an oddly pleasant and optimistic way for anyone living in 2017. As he continued through the park, Benjamin found himself in the middle of some sort of fun run. Several men and women dressed in animal skins, roaring and cheering as they caught sight of what was presumably the finish line. An enormous volcano belting red-hot lava onto what had been the duck pond by the grandstand. They were having such a whale of a time that they kept pushing Benjamin out of the way. And he had to be quick to dodge two men in an incredibly convincing saber-toothed tiger costume, bounding off into the crowd ahead of him to hug the stragglers, presumably for emotional support. Benjamin turned to look back the way he had come. All of the shops and people looked out of date, like they had been sat on a shelf since Victorian times. And as he slowed his pace, he began to feel snow moistening his tracky bottoms. Benjamin watched the men in top hats and coattails strut along the cobbled street, their walking canes striking hard against the flagstones, and across the face of the urchin boy begging for change. This can't be right, thought Benjamin. Maybe I've accidentally run through several robots, security guards, and traps of wardrobe, catering, and camera equipment, and thus onto a film set without noticing. Poor Benjamin. He simply couldn't take it in and rationalise what was really taking place. As he stared in disbelief at his surroundings, he was knocked off balance by a gentleman on a penny farthing, complete with pinstripe trousers, waistcoat, and mutton chops, bellowing at him to watch where he was going. Fucking hipsters, muttered Benjamin, wiping the snow from his face. Strange, the white stuff tasted salty. As he got to his hands and knees and spat out the real fake snow that he had landed in. For you see, my friends, Benjamin Bakula was right. He was on a Victorian film set. A Victorian film set in the 1970s. Benjamin screamed and ran as fast as he could. He ran and ran and he ran still more. He ran through time. And everything changed around him. Parachute pants came in and out of fashion. The 1930s came and went and then came again ironically. And dinosaurs ruled the earth via three consecutive Tory governments. As Benjamin turned right at the Cretaceous period, his surroundings suddenly returned to normal. Sunshine replaced snow. The cowboys became cowboy builders and Benjamin was relieved to spot a modern-day Greggs. Wearily dragging his glutes towards the comforting comfort food, he passed Jennifer, lying on the park bench. She'd been asleep all this time. Benjamin entered the Greggs, grabbed a basket, and filled it with sausage rolls and steak slices, content to never exercise again. He placed the basket on the counter, and passed his bank card to the girl behind it, who placed it in the bottom of the chip and pin machine and waited for it to read. Just need to put your pin in for me, love, she said, smiling sweetly. Oh, I never remember my pin, replied Benjamin, in an oddly smug tone of voice. I use contactless car payment. The girl looked at him, confused. What's contactless car payment? she asked as the blood drained from Benjamin Bakula's face and his eyes traced the brand new One Direction calendar behind him. He looked down at the Adidas Samba trainers. 
dry Korean cackle of that sinister barista echoed through his mind forever. And so, trapped in the past, Benjamin Bakula found himself jogging from time to time, putting things right that once went wrong, and hoping each time that his next jog around the park will be the jog around the park home. was crushed by the two towers of Wembley Stadium not the other ones well, that's pretty much it Horror meets further horror in Duck Lumps, a multi-series collection of frighteningly frightening books from the best-selling author, Fad Deer Spent. But not so frightening as so they can't be given to children or read in the back of the car on the way to smelly auntie dots. Duck Lumps. That's what they're called. The series is entitled Duck Lumps. Featuring such chilling tales as the biters of Barnaby Hill. Little Timmy's new neighbours are very strange. They're always spending their time indoors, bathing in the blood of virgins, and they hardly ever want to play ring toss. They're probably not vampires, though. The Killing Yoke. Seven-year-old Michael Fratley didn't know what was coming to him when he infected the egg of his favourite chicken, Francis, with bullshark semen. But now it's running amok in Harrods, and nobody believes him. The Diary of Anne Frankenstein. Ten-year-old Tilda Mugg is bone idle, but now she has to enter the school science fair to avoid expulsion. And the deadline's tomorrow. Maybe her wacky Uncle Mengele has something up his sleeve. Art Garfunkel selling hatred. Maybe it was Janine's overactive imagination, but the book she found in a safe at the bottom of a sealed vault in the sunken city of real law smelled too salty to be natural. A boy buys some ants but then feeds the ants too much and now the ants are too big. Seriously massive, there's no way they're going to fit in all those little tubes. Um, Easter... the... Um, Easter Easter is the new geography teacher at St. Swithin School for wayward boys. Um, but he's got a ruler. A decontaminated, decomposing Henry VIII, who forces the boys to do medieval PE. Dexter Blackstock is a former Southampton striker with a sniper rifle. Lactose intolerant? When Daisy goes to work on her uncle's dairy farm, he doesn't ex she didn't expect his right-wing views to be so offensive to her. Um, foil. Ring a ring a roses, reanimated Nazis. A tissue, a tissue, it's all gone wrong. Santa's here, and he's dead.